Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Many people around the world believe that we have lived before, that we experience a succession of lives so that when we die in one body, we're reborn in another. This belief, known as reincarnation, is found in multiple world religions, including major ones like Hinduism and Buddhism. It's also believed by various tribal peoples around the world and even by some individuals in the Christian West. But in the 20th century, parapsychologists started studying reports of reincarnation from a scientific rather than a religious perspective. One of the most famous researchers was psychiatrist Ian Stevenson. So what have parapsychologists found about cases of the reincarnation type? Is there any evidence that something paranormal might be going on in these cases? And what could possibly explain their findings? How will we proceed in our discussion? Once again, we're going to have a two-part look at the subject. Today, we'll be looking at modern reincarnation research in general. We'll be talking about the researchers themselves, about particular well-known cases, and about the general findings that reincarnation researchers have uncovered, such as statistics about reincarnation cases and the different types of reincarnation cases that occur in different cultures. Then next week, we'll go into analysis mode and look at the possible ways in which we could explain these cases. We'll look at explanations that are both natural and paranormal. We'll look at proposed explanations that do and do not involve actual reincarnation. And we'll look at these from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. You're listening to episode 276 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about theories that could explain the findings of recent reincarnation research. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For thousands of years, many people have believed in reincarnation. They believe that when we die, we come back, are born again, and live in a new body. In the 20th century, parapsychologists began studying reports of reincarnation, and last week we looked at what they found. But what can explain the reports of reincarnation? Do we truly live again, or is there another explanation? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, last week we surveyed the current state of reincarnation research, building on the work of researchers like Ian Stevenson, Jim Tucker, Erlander Haraldson, and James Matlock. What do we need to say this week to begin? Listeners should go back and listen to last week's episode number 275 for a summary of the research. We won't be reviewing it all here. But we will be referring back to the patterns in the cases of the reincarnation type that we discussed. These cases of the reincarnation type, also known as CORT or court, have been widely discussed in parapsychological literature for the last 70 years. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing what might explain them. Parapsychologists researching reincarnation have generated a sizable literature seeking to explain these cases. Will we be hearing anything new, or are you just going to be summarizing what has already been said? We're going to be hearing some new material. For the last several months, I've been doing an in-depth research project into reports of reincarnation. I've read multiple books, and ideas have occurred to me that I haven't seen in print 
in the existing literature. My plan is to eventually publish on this subject for the parapsychological community, perhaps as a short to moderate-sized book. I still need to do the writing and have it checked out and evaluated by people working in the field, but today I'll be giving you a peek at my initial thoughts and what I may one day say in print. How will we be proceeding in the discussion? Here on Mysterious World, we look at subjects from the perspectives of faith and reason. Uh, today, we will be mostly looking at the subject from the reason perspective. That is, what I could determine based on reason alone without bringing considerations of Christian faith into it. Most of what I have to say comes from the reason perspective, and it consists of what I would say from a purely scientific parapsychological perspective. So we will be primarily looking at reincarnation cases in terms of what can be determined from reason alone. Only afterwards, and more briefly, will we look at things from the faith perspective and what the faith would have to say about reincarnation. Then let's talk about the theories that could explain the reports of reincarnation being studied by parapsychologists. What theories are there about reincarnation accounts? There are two basic theories that we need to consider. First, whether they all have normal, natural explanations without anything paranormal going on. And second, whether there is something beyond the purely normal that is happening. When it comes to natural explanations, there are two basic possibilities. First, there's the possibility that the people reporting the case know that nothing paranormal is happening here. So the case is the result of fraud, a deliberate hoax. And second, there is the possibility that the people reporting the case don't know that it has a purely normal explanation. Instead, they are innocently misinterpreting things. Then there's the second basic theory, which is that something beyond the purely natural is happening in at least some of these cases. And here, there are basically three theories that we need to consider. I should mention that these theories also can blend into each other to a degree, and you could draw the lines a little differently between them, but this categorization will serve for our purposes. First, there is the view that people really do survive death and get reborn in new bodies. In other words, that reincarnation is real. This is the common understanding of reincarnation in many circles, including Hinduism. Hindus refer to humans as having an immaterial self, known as the Atman, or what we in English would call a soul. And this soul goes from one body to another across lifetimes. Some parapsychologists have come up with non-religious terms for this entity. For example, Ian Stevenson referred to the thing that passes from one life to another as a psychophore, a word that comes from Greek roots that mean mind-bearer or mind-carrier. He conceived of a psychophore as more than just a person's consciousness. It's a kind of subtle or astral body and it provides a morphogenic template for the body of the person that it reincarnates as, enabling it to pass on birthmarks and things like that. Another theory is that of James Matlock, who refers to his view as the processual soul theory. In an email to me, he describes it this way. I start with the idea that the soul is no more than mind or consciousness that survives bodily death, continues during a discarnate intermission period, then possesses a new body, not necessarily at conception, and in replacement cases, indeed, after birth. Memories, personality traits, behavioral dispositions, etc., I think are recorded in the subconscious mind, 
from where they may resurface in the new life. They can have an effect on us, even in the absence of conscious memories, though. I explain physical science rather like you do, as a psychogenic operation of the mind acting through psychokinesis on the new body. I call my theory the processual soul theory, to emphasize that it depends on a process metaphysics rather than a Cartesian mind-body dualism. I often reference process philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, but please don't make the mistake of assuming that I'm suggesting an impersonal sort of survival. I think I make clear in my book, Signs of Reincarnation, that I do very much conceive of a personal sort of survival and reincarnation. In addition to Stevenson's psychophore theory and Matlock's processual soul theory, there are other variations as well, but what they have in common is the idea that there is a substantial entity, something that constitutes you, that survives and comes back. I want to keep things simple without a lot of unfamiliar jargon, so I will refer to all of these as variations on the soul theory of reincarnation. You also could call this general view the survival theory of reincarnation. That is, the person or soul really does survive death. What's the second paranormal theory of reincarnation we should know about? It can be thought of as a kind of non-survival theory, and this theory is more associated with the religion of Buddhism than Hinduism. Buddhism commonly rejects the existence of an ongoing soul or Atman. Uh, this rejection is referred to as Anatta or Anatman, which means no Atman or no self. On this view, there is no stable self or soul that survives death and travels from body to body across lifetimes. Instead, some Buddhist literature compares the process of reincarnation to one candle lighting another. The candles are distinct entities, but something passes between them, the flame, such that when one candle is going out, another candle lights up. On the no-self view of reincarnation, something passes between the dying person and someone being reborn, and that thing continues, but it isn't a full person or self, and so this can be seen as a non-survival view of reincarnation. I should mention that the way I've just articulated this is not shared by all Buddhists. As a religion, Buddhism is quite diverse, and so is Hinduism, so we shouldn't expect all Buddhists to hold the same views. And some Buddhists sound very much like they have a survival view of reincarnation. Uh, for example, a while back, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, which is a book that you read to a dead person or a dying person in Tibetan Buddhism to help them navigate what they're going to encounter in the afterlife. And the, Tib the Tibetan Book of the Dead uses language that sounds really survivalistic, like, you really have survived your death, and now you need to navigate the afterlife, avoiding some things and embracing others. But the no-self, candle-lighting-a-candle view, is also present in Buddhist thought. And parapsychologists have also picked up on this no-survival view of reincarnation, where something less than a complete self passes between people. For example, Jürgen Kyle proposed that when a person dies, he emits thought bundles that go into the environment where they may float around and persist for some time. Then a child or a pregnant mother encounters these thought bundles. They go into the child and suddenly the child is having what appear to be memories of a person who died before he was born. 
Thought bundles are one possible medium that could convey these memories, but not the only one. What these different views have in common with other possibilities, what the thought bundles view has in common with other possibilities on the non-survival view, is that they are something less than a person. They're not a full soul or atman, but some kind of residue that's left behind when a person dies. And so I will refer to this general class of theories as residue theories, that some kind of residue passes between the prior person and the person in a current court. Also, being a comic book fan, I can't resist pointing out that the residue theory would essentially make a reincarnated person Swamp Thing. Um, readers of comic books will know that the monster superhero Swamp Thing believed that he was a scientist named Alec Holland, who had been transformed by falling into a swamp covered with fire and chemicals. But it was later revealed that Alec Holland died in that swamp, and a new creature, Swamp Thing, grew in the swamp and inherited his memories. So Swamp Thing really wasn't Alec Holland like he thought. He just had residue of Alec Holland, his memories, that made him think he was the scientist. And in the same way, the residue theories of reincarnation would, you wouldn't really be the previous person in those, but you would have residue, including their memories, that could make you think you were the previous person. You indicated that there was a third paranormal theory we should consider. What's that? It's another view that does not involve a full soul passing between people. Instead, it focuses on the use of psychic abilities by living people, or what is called living agent psi. Back in the 19th century, the, when the British Society for Psychical Research was studying mediums, one of the questions they had when a medium got accurate information that went beyond random chance was where the medium was getting the information. Uh, for example, suppose you go to a medium and ask, to con act, ask her to contact your dead sister. And during the seance, the medium says that your sister has just told you about an event in your childhood, something that nobody else knows about, something only you and your sister knew about. The medium says that she's getting this information from the spirit of your departed sister, who the medium claims to be in telepathic contact with. But the thing is, you also know about the event from your childhood. You know the secret. So how do you know that the medium isn't telepathically pulling that information from you? Maybe this isn't a case of the medium contacting a spirit that has survived death. Maybe the experience doesn't involve survival at all. But instead, it involves a case of a living person, the medium, using psychic abilities to retrieve the information telepathically from you, another living person. So it would be a case of living agent side. Well, the debate on whether mediumistic experiences provide evidence of survival after death or they're just cases of living agent psi is a debate that has replicated in reincarnation research. Suppose that you have a child in one village who is apparently remembering things that happened to someone who used to live in the neighboring village. Does the child have that person's soul or is the child just using psychic abilities? to retrieve the information. Even if the child has never heard of the dead person through normal means, the 
dead person's family over in the other village still remembers them. So maybe the child is telepathically pulling that information from the living members of the dead person's family. Maybe when the child is able to describe how what the dead person's house looks like, he's getting the information for the description telepathically from the family. Or maybe having identified the person, he's using remote viewing to see the house. Or maybe he's using remote viewing and retrocognition to view it the way it looked back during the person's lifetime. And so you could explain all of the information that the child remembers, not in terms of a soul passing between them or some kind of residue passing between them, but just in terms of the living child using psychic abilities. Or maybe it's not the child, but a third person, what you could call a mediator. For example, Suppose that two parents have suffered the tragedy of one of their children dying. Um, They're crushed, they miss the child terribly, and they desperately want the child back. So when the mother gets pregnant again, uh, the mother or the father uses their psychic abilities to impress memories of the previous child on the unborn baby. And after the new baby is born and gets old enough to talk, behold, he's got memories of the previous child. We heard about a case like that last week. It was the one in which a girl named Susan Eastland had memories of her deceased sister, Winnie, who had died when she was hit by a car and whose parents very much wanted her to come back to them. In parapsychology, the living agent psi view is sometimes called the super psi hypothesis. Why is that and does it apply here? Super psi is a term that is applied in more than one circumstance, but for our purposes, The relevant understanding of it is the idea of psychic functioning that acts in a complex and powerful way. That power and complexity is the super part of super psi. For example, uh, when the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, was doing tests on mediums in the 19th century, they sometimes set up very complex scenarios. For example, they would sometimes use proxy sitters. Uh, That is, instead of sending the person with the dead sister to talk to the medium, they'd send somebody else, uh, a proxy, to act on that person's behalf. That way, the medium couldn't telepathically pull the information from the person sitting in front of her. To get at stories that the real sitter knew, she'd have to subconsciously trace who the real sitter was through the proxy sitter sitting in front of her. They also could ask about things that the real sitter didn't know, but that they could later check because it was written down somewhere, in which case the medium couldn't pull the information telepathically from any living person. Instead, she'd have to subconsciously review, remote view a written document somewhere. And so they could create elaborate scenarios in which the medium was neither pu- was either pulling the information from a spirit that knew it, or she was using her psychic abilities to pull the information from a complex network of sources without even realizing it. Psychic abilities that could work that way were regarded as extraordinary, and so this became known as the super-psi hypothesis. And the same thing could happen in reincarnation cases, uh, where in order to know what a dead person knew, The child or a mediator, like a mother or father, would have to pull on a complex web of sources, like pulling information telepathically from multiple different people and using abilities like remote viewing to check things that no living person currently knows. And so 
Some authors speak of the living agent psi interpretation of reincarnation cases as the super psi interpretation. Does it have to be that way? Does living agent psi have to involve super psi? I don't think so. And that brings us to my own idea. What I want to propose is a model that could use living agent psi to explain cases of the reincarnation type, but it isn't a complex super psi version. Instead, it's a simple, straightforward link between the current person and the earlier person. Based on reports in parapsychology, it doesn't look like time is a fundamental barrier to psychic functioning. People reportedly use precognition to view the future, and they also can use retrocognition to view the past. So all you really need is a retrocognitive link between a living person, such as a child, and a deceased person, or a non-retrocognitive forward-looking link between the dying person and the child who will be born in the future. And all the information found in a case of the reincarnation type would just be pulled through that link between the two people. Assuming that your psychic link theory is possible, why would such links exist? Why would they occur for two in a thousand people in part of India as well as in other parts of the world. The motive would depend on the person generating the link, and this could be one of several different parties. For example, consider the motives of the earlier person. You know, all human beings are averse to dying. We are programmed to try to avoid death, and it's that programming that helps us stay alive. And when people are in emergency circumstances, their survival instinct can kick in in a really strong way. So, Consider the situation of a person experiencing a violent, unexpected death, like those that make up about half of reincarnation cases. You've just been in a battle or a fight or an accident, and you're fatally wounded, and you're desperately trying to survive. And let's suppose that you believe in reincarnation, since that tends to be the case in these instances. So you're dying, frightened, panicked, and desperate to survive. And believing in reincarnation, you psychically reach out to a child being born in the future, and you impress information on him about yourself in an attempt to survive. You've just formed a psychic link with that child that will generate the appearance of you having survived. And this might even happen without a life or death struggle. Uh, as we heard about last episode, the Slingit man, Victor Vincent, told his niece that he would be reborn as her son. So maybe Victor Vincent reached out and formed a psychic link with Corliss Chotkin and transferred the information that was needed into him. The psychic link could also be formed by a mediator. In some cultures, a shaman, priest, or monk might function as a mediator, the Shaman declares that one person will be reborn as another, and perhaps it's the shaman that forms the link between these two individuals. Or perhaps the mediator is a parent, the child's mother or father. You know, they've lost a child they desperately want back, or it could be another relative or even just a good friend, but they want this person back, and so they form a psychic link between the deceased person and the new child and enough information flows through that link to make it seem like the parents have gotten their friend or loved one back. Then there's the child himself. Uh, perhaps there's a child who has some unusual quirks that set him apart from other children, like 
birthmarks or phobias or personality preferences. And to explain these, the child finds an earlier person with similar characteristics, and the child then forms a link with that person and pulls through a bunch of information about them. Or perhaps, especially in reincarnation-believing societies, the child can use such a link to his advantage. In many tribal societies, reincarnation is believed to occur within families, and so the child could gain an advantage by being able to report memories of a prior family member. He could claim part of that person's status and affection for himself and maybe even that person's property. Either way, he'd get special treatment, and so there could be a survival value in forming a psychic link with a previous family member and establishing yourself as that person's successor. Or, maybe it isn't a family member. Maybe it's someone from a higher social group, like in the cases of Gopal Gupta and Jasper Jat in India that we heard about last episode. Both of them claim to have previously been members of the highest Brahmin caste, superior to the caste of the families, castes of the families into which they were born. And they used their status as former Brahmins to demand special treatment from their own families. So there could be survival value in claiming a former life in better circumstances. And maybe your situation in your current family is kind of precarious. If you can establish yourself as a former member of a different family, they can serve as a backup family in case things go badly. Both Gopal and Jasper were able to convince the previous families that they were their deceased loved ones reborn. So if things ever went bad with their current families, they could go back to the previous ones and say, they're treating me badly, take me back. Jasper's family even feared that he would try to go back and live with his former family instead of with them. So there can be survival value in having a backup family in case things ever go south with the one you're currently in. I thus think there are multiple sensible motives for forming the kind of psychic link that I'm proposing on the part of the dying person who's trying to survive, on the part of mediators like parents who want a dead child back, and on the part of children who are having to survive and compete with other children in other people in the world they live in and could get a survival advantage by establishing a psychic link with a previous person. I thus think that this simplified psychic link hypothesis, which does not involve super psi that's complex, but just a straightforward link between two people, deserves serious consideration. And there's also one more notable theory that we'll introduce later in the program. Now, before we move on, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Tommy C., Patricia M., Benjamin B., Kathleen F., and Tom L. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters 
throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com and by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Jimmy, before we start looking at the individual theories that could explain cases of the reincarnation type, there's something I know you wanted to mention. What is that? One of the things that we did in our initial discussion of reincarnation back in episode 93 and again in episode 94 was offer a discussion and critique of the concept of karma. Karma is a principle associated with reincarnation in religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, and the New Age movement. Karma can be understood different ways, and we kept the discussion simple using a simplified Western New Age understanding of karma, since that's the version most of our Western listeners will be familiar with. On this understanding, the basic idea is that when you do bad things, it builds up a kind of debt that will have to be paid off in the future, either in this life or in a future one, with bad, for example, bad things happening to you. And we critiqued this simplified understanding of karma. What I wanted to mention at this point is that we won't be going back to the subject of karma in this discussion. Partly, that's because karma is not essential to the theory of reincarnation. Various cultures in the world believe in reincarnation, but not in karma. Also, parapsychologists doing reincarnation research have not found good evidence that karma is involved in reincarnation. In fact, despite the popularity of the concept in some circles, they've actually found good evidence against the idea that karma is involved in reincarnation. One of the things that we mentioned last week is the pattern of many court involving an earlier person who had a higher position in society. We also mentioned that a very common pattern in court is for the earlier person to have suffered a violent death, and the children in these cases are often traumatized by their apparent memories of this death. Under the theory of karma, you wouldn't expect the earlier people to suffer violent deaths and then be reborn into lower stations in society and also suffer the after effects of the trauma, unless the earlier persons were really bad people. But researchers haven't found good evidence that the earlier people who suffered these fates were bad. They don't appear to be notable sinners as a group. So the evidence of modern reincarnation research does not suggest that karma is governing this process. And various researchers have been very upfront about that. So modern parapsychological research on reincarnation does not focus on karma. And since that research is what we're discussing, we won't be focusing on karma either. Now that we've laid out theories that could explain cases of the reincarnation type, let's go back through them from the reason perspective and see how well they fit the data that reincarnation researchers have uncovered. The first theory we mentioned was hoax. How good is that as an explanation of the data? People do commit conscious fraud in reincarnation cases, and reincarnation researchers are aware of that fact. In 1988, Ian Stevenson and some colleagues published a paper calling out seven cases of hoax and self-deception. But nobody, even skeptics, believes that all cases of the reincarnation type involve fraud. Many of the people who report them are obviously sincere. So fraud does explain some cases, but it is not a good 
comprehensive explanation for court. What about misinterpretation? Could people in a childhood court simply be misinterpreting things as past life memories that aren't? This is also a real possibility, and I'm sure it does explain some cases. Uh, children between the ages of two and five, when most court begin, are at a stage of life in which children do a lot of fantasy role play. They imitate the adults around them and pretend to be adults. In our culture, they might pretend to be doctors, nurses, police officers, or mailmen, or any number of the other adults they see around them in their community or on television. And sometimes, caught up in the middle of this fantasy role play, they may announce that they are such an adult, and they may fantasize and imagine a lot of other things, even when they aren't in the middle of obvious play. When their parents don't believe in reincarnation, they will just dismiss this as childhood role play. But if the parents do believe in reincarnation, they may wonder whether this is just play or whether it might be a past life memory. And since people make mistakes, they may in some cases mistakenly take it as evidence of a past life memory. Once that happens, they may start exploring the idea to check it out and see if it really is a past life memory. They may start taking seriously what the child is saying and asking the child questions. And they may unintentionally cue the child about what the answers to the questions should be. If the child picks up on the cues, he'll give the right answers. And that will convince the parents that this isn't just role play and is a past life memory. And realizing that the parents are now thinking that he had a past life memory, the child becomes convinced of this too, because children are programmed to accept their parents' beliefs under ordinary conditions. That's what helps them learn about and navigate the world. When the story then spreads, other people may get involved in reinforcing the idea too. For example, if there's a nearby family that just by random chance happens to match what the child has been saying, and if they then go and meet that family to see if the child recognizes people in it, a whole crowd may gather around, and when they ask the child, do you recognize your former wife, people in the crowd start looking at the dead person's wife, and the child sees who they're looking at and says, yes, that's her, and this is then taken as confirmation of the past life memory, but really the process is accidental, and it's also entirely innocent. Nobody is trying to deceive anybody here. It's just accidental misidentification. And factors like parental guidance and psychosocial influence may explain a significant number of court. For example, in Signs of Reincarnation, James Matlock writes, Parental guidance has been demonstrated in a few cases. A Turkish Alevi man whose wife was pregnant dreamed that President John F. Kennedy came to him and said he wanted to be reborn in his family. This was in November 1965, two years to the month after Kennedy's assassination. Soon after the apparent announcing dream, a son was born and named Kennedy, spelled K-E-N-E-D-I. Kennedy had a birthmark on his shoulder, which was thought to be where President Kennedy was shot. In fact, he was hit in the neck, not the shoulder. Kennedy was told that he was Kennedy's reincarnation and came to believe it. Although as a young child, he never spoke about Kennedy or gave other evidence of recalling Kennedy's life. 
So this kind of thing does happen. And in the skeptical community, it's the best explanation for the majority of reincarnation cases. It also fits with why court are so much more common in cultures that believe in reincarnation and so much rarer elsewhere. It also could explain numerous culturally linked aspects of court, like why cultures such as the Druze that believe you don't ever change sex never report past lives where people were of a different sex, why cultures like the Kutchin that traditionally expect you to change sex with lives have a much higher rate of reporting past lives of the opposite sex, why cultures like the Tlingit the Haida and the Igbo, which believe that you are normally reborn in your family, report more than 90% of cases where the previous person was a family member, and why cultures that say you must reincarnate either in your father's line or your mother's line report the previous person belonging to the correct line, and why so many of the previous persons in these cases are said to have been male given the social prominence that males tend to be given in many cultures. So this theory, the psychosocial theory, would explain a lot of things, including the culturally linked aspects of cases of the reincarnation type. And as I said, it's considered the best theory in the skeptical community. What do believers in reincarnation say in response to the fact that the psychosocial model would explain so many things? A culture's beliefs about reincarnation are a really good explanation of why the cases reported in their culture show the characteristics they do. Supporters of reincarnation can point out at least two things in response. First, they can simply agree with the claim that it's the culture that is causing the cases to have the characteristics they do. They can say, absolutely. The reason Druze only report cases where the person was of the same sex is because Druze believe that this is the only type of reincarnation that's possible. And they don't have to say that the Druze are suppressing cases that don't fit this pattern. Uh, in principle, it can be true that Druze always come back as the same sex because that's what a dying Druze person believes is going to happen. You see, it isn't just the parents and villagers of the Druze child who believe that reincarnation works this way. The earlier Druze persons who died also believed this. So maybe what you believed about reincarnation during your lifetime somehow affects how you'll reincarnate. So if you're a Druze man and, and you die, you'll find an unborn male child for your next incarnation. The fact that various aspects of cases of the reincarnation type are culturally linked is thus ambiguous. It's consistent both with the skeptical psychosocial theory and with the idea that your beliefs about how you'll reincarnate influence how you reincarnate. So the cultural linkage isn't decisive between those two views. You said believers in reincarnation have a second response they can make to the psychosocial theory. What's that? They could say, okay, sure, parental guidance and other psychosocial factors may explain some court, but they aren't a good comprehensive explanation for them because there are cases where the knowledge that the child has goes way beyond random chance that could be produced by guessing and social cueing from other people. 
Uh, in some of these cases, known as early bird cases, the researchers are called in early enough that they could study the situation under controlled conditions, where researchers were watching carefully to make sure that the child was not cued about the right answer. For example, they might show the child a picture of people who knew the earlier person, a picture of people the child has never seen before, and say, can you tell me the names of these people? And then the child names them, not just saying, this is my mommy and this is my brother, you know, things you could guess from their age and sex in the photo, but giving specific names like, this is my mother, Samira, and this is my brother, Adib. And the child may say other things that turn out to be true about these people, like she used to own a white cat and he had a kite with a dragon painted on it. You know, things that go beyond chance and that unintentional cues like the direction of your gaze or the nod of your head would never tell the child. So there are cases where under controlled conditions, Children have demonstrated knowledge that does not have a natural explanation, and so we must seek a paranormal explanation. That doesn't mean that the soul theory of reincarnation is true and that souls pass between humans in different lifetimes. The residue theory, that something less than a full soul passes between people, could also explain it. Or it could be that there's some form of complex super that's responsible for the information transfer. Or it could be explained by my proposal that there is a non-complex, non-super psychic connection between the earlier person and the child. But it would mean that some kind of paranormal explanation is involved, at least in high-quality court. Let's take a step back and look at the different types of evidence that are often involved in cases of the reincarnation type. Ian Stevenson said that a fully developed case would involve a prediction by the earlier person of how he will reincarnate. Such predictions only commonly occur in a few cultures, but what do you make of the evidential value of such a prediction? Taken by itself, I don't think it has much value. If a person makes a prediction like Victor Vincent did and says, I'm going to come back as your child, then what that shows is that Victor Vincent believed he was going to come back, you know, in that way. But that doesn't mean he was right, because people often have false beliefs. You thus need something more to establish that the child in question was connected to Victor Vincent in the relevant way. You'd need some additional evidence. So I see predictions at best, as playing only a supportive role as secondary evidence in a court, not as primary evidence capable of establishing a serious court on its own. What about announcing dreams? Do they provide good evidence? Again, not by themselves. Uh, the most an announcing dream may do is show why a later person believed that the child was a reincarnation of someone. But as we said, you know, people have all kinds of false beliefs. In fact, they're filled, uh, particularly in dreams. You know, dreams are notoriously unreliable in terms of what they say about reality. They're filled with fantasy scenarios that don't have any bearing that's obvious on reality. But they also can be genuinely paranormal. As I mentioned before, I've had precognitive dreams that in one case represented an unpredictable occurrence that happened to me the next day 
just as realistically in the dream, I saw it as if I'd been watching a videotape from tomorrow. Numerous other people have also had predictive dreams. In fact, speaking from the faith perspective for a moment, the Bible records numerous dreams that were supernaturally predictive due to God's action. So I don't want to dismiss predictive dreams as simply meaningless, but you need something in addition to the dream in order to show that it was genuinely predictive. So in a case of the reincarnation type, you need something more than the dream itself to establish a genuine connection between the child and the earlier person. And we've seen how an announcing dream can be misleading, like in the case of the Turkish boy whose father had an announcing dream featuring President Kennedy, even though there was no later evidence that the boy had any unusual connection to President Kennedy. Announcing dreams thus, at best, play only a supportive role as secondary evidence in a court. You need more than that as a primary source of evidence. What about the birthmarks or birth defects that are reported in cases of the reincarnation type? What evidential value do they have? Again, I think that they can play a secondary role at best. Uh, Ian Stevenson did not originally think that birthmarks were significant. And one of the reasons I say that they are of limited value is that I myself have a birthmark. It's right here on my right forearm. If you're watching this in the video version of the podcast, you can see that on my right forearm, I have two roughly triangular-shaped red patches that mirror each other. But the birthmarks in reincarnation cases are often thought to reflect the fatal wounds that the earlier person suffered. And it's hard for me to imagine how I would have suffered a fatal wound in my right forearm like this. Um... Then there's, I should note, though, they're not always held to be fatal wounds, but they often are. Then there's the fact that there is no known mechanism by which a wound on one person would get transferred onto another person as a birthmark. That's not an absolute barrier, though. Um, Parapsychologists have reported evidence of the ability of the mind to influence physical matter. This is known as mind over matter or psychokinesis. And they've even reported evidence of what are known as demils or distant mental influence on living systems. So it could be the case that court could involve psychokinetic demils where something, whether it's a soul or residue or a living agent psychic activity, could produce birthmarks or even birth defects on an unborn child based on what happened with an earlier person. But you need more than just the birthmark or birth defect to establish a connection between the child and the previous person. Lots of people have birthmarks or birth defects for all kinds of reasons, many of them unknown. And I think that birthmarks and birth defects thus can at best play a supporting role in cases of the reincarnation type, but they aren't a source of primary evidence. What about the behavioral similarities that the child in a court may have to an earlier person? What evidential value do they have? I think it's secondary. Uh, The fact is that lots of people have behavioral similarities, even if the behavior is unusual, like preferring a kind of food that is not part of the local cuisine. You know, some other people will have that characteristic. And so we have to consider the possibility that random chance is responsible for 
why a child has the same behavioral similarity as an earlier person. Of course, if the child has multiple uncommon behavioral similarities to an earlier person, that strengthens the odds that this is not just due to random chance. But because of the vagueness of behavioral similarities and the fact that multiple people in an area may share them, it makes it hard to use this as primary evidence in a court. Um, No pun intended. This applies even with highly specific skills that the child displays without seeming to have naturally learned them. Uh, They also could have been learned in non-reincarnation ways, like psychically learning them from someone who does have those skills, even if the person from whom they learned them isn't the prior person. They still could have psychically learned them from someone else. And so I don't see them as primary evidence. You need something more than just behavioral similarities for a strong case of the reincarnation type. Then what about the memories that the child reports? Do they have additional evidential value? I think so. And here's where we come to what I consider primary evidence. If a child reports accurate memories of an earlier person and they turn out to be accurate in a way that exceeds random chance and has no natural explanation, then I think we've got serious evidence that something paranormal is going on in these cases. Once such memories have been verified, then the other forms of evidence come back in and play a a larger supporting role, like predictions made by the earlier person, or announcing dreams, or birthmarks, or behavioral similarities, or skills. But it's the presence of accurate, verifiable information in apparent memories that would serve as the primary evidence. Without those, I don't think we have a strong case of the reincarnation type. So it's veridical memories, accurate memories, that are the linchpin. If we have them, then we have a strong case. If we don't, then we don't. In the strong cases, does everything the child says turn out to be true? No. uh, Children in court do do make some claims that are false. In fact, parapsychologists who do reincarnation research keep track of how many verifiable claims a child makes as, you know, as opposed to how many can be falsified and how many can't be either verified or falsified. But based on the reading I've done, there do seem to be cases where the children make verifiable claims that substantially exceed random chance. Could you look at this data in aggregate and say that these cases are outliers? And so overall, the cases of the reincarnation type don't display anything beyond random chance? This is a very interesting suggestion. I mean, as a result of any random process, you'd expect to have some cases that seem to exceed random chance and other cases that seem to perform below random chance. So it's quite possible that by focusing on the fact that individual court are highly impressive, you're missing the fact that other less impressive court balance them out. In testing this situation, a key issue would be how to determine which cases to include for purposes, for purposes of evaluation and which to exclude. And it could turn out, if you include the proper cases, the successful cases are balanced out by the less successful ones, so that in aggregate, there's no phenomenon here that exceeds what you would expect by random chance. 
it would require some very technical, very detailed statistical work to show this. And as far as I'm aware, that work hasn't been done. I'd love to see it done one day. Uh, As I was writing the script for this episode, this possibility occurred to me, and I'm likely to raise it as a point in future discussions of the subject. But since the needed analysis hasn't been done, let's suppose for purposes of argument that it has been done and that court still continue to involve things that can't be explained by random chance. Let's review the different theories to explain reincarnation cases and see how well they do or don't do in explaining both the major, more universal patterns and the more culturally linked ones. Let's start with natural explanations. What can we say about them? We've already discussed the hoax theory, and while hoaxes are responsible for some cases of the reincarnation type, hoax isn't a good overall explanation. So instead, we'll focus on the parental influence or psychosocial theory, the idea that court often emerge from innocent misunderstandings based on people's beliefs about reincarnation. Well, to begin with, Stevenson's first fully developed element, or element for a fully de- what he calls a fully developed case, um, it was a prediction that a dying person will reincarnate in a certain family or place. Well, the naturalistic understanding explains that if the dying person believes in reincarnation and believes that it's possible for him to determine the circumstances of his reincarnation, then he may make such a prediction as Victor Vincent did. So there's nothing surprising here from a naturalistic perspective. Such a prediction might then lead someone like the mother or a relative to have an announcing dream in which the dead person says he's coming back. That could definitely have happened in Victor Vincent's family. It may be the prediction he made led to the announcing dream. In fact, people with deceased loved ones often dream about their departed loved ones, and sometimes they dream about having them back. After my wife Renee died, I dreamed about having her back a lot. But I wasn't a believer in reincarnation, and she didn't tell me in the dreams that she was going to be reincarnated. But Wow, I dreamed about her suddenly being alive again a lot. So in a culture where people do believe in reincarnation, it's quite likely that someone in the family will dream about having the lost loved one back, and that could then take the form of a reincarnation announcement dream. So nothing here would be surprising again from the naturalistic perspective. The naturalistic perspective also is good. really good at explaining the cultural differences in reincarnation cases. You would expect people to report having been male in past lives in male-centered cultures. You would expect them to report being previous members of the father or mother's line in a patrilineal or matrilineal culture. You would expect them to report having a family member, acquaintance, or stranger, depending on the beliefs the culture has about who reincarnates in whose family. You would expect them to report having lived a shorter distance away in smaller countries. You would expect them to report changing sex or not based on the culture's beliefs about whether that's possible between lifetimes. You would expect the length of the intermission to vary based on how the culture believes people reincarnate. 
you would expect stronger, more detailed cases to show up in cultures that believe in reincarnation. You also might expect a high proportion of the past lives to have met with violent deaths, since people like telling dramatic attention-grabbing stories. And you definitely expect the reincarnation stories to appear much more frequently in cultures that believe in reincarnation than in those that don't. So the naturalistic theory does a good job explaining all these things. What about birthmarks? Does it explain those well? If the birthmark is considered by itself, I, I think so, because birthmarks make people distinctive and they raise questions. Uh, a child with a birthmark will ask, well, why do I have this mark that, you know, makes me different from other people? And in cultures that believe in reincarnation, it would be natural to wonder if you have a birthmark because you were wounded in a past life. So the child may wonder about the birthmark and then based on the culture's belief in reincarnation may decide that the birthmark was where they received a wound in a past life. What about unique behaviors or skills that a person demonstrates? Does it explain those? Again, I think considered by, the, by themselves, the naturalistic theory does explain them. You know, people are not all the same. So if a person has a unique behavior that sets them apart from other people, well, that's going to raise questions too. And it will be natural to link that behavior to an earlier person in a culture that believes in reincarnation. The same thing goes for skills. Different people have different aptitudes and pick up skills at different rates. Some are even prodigies who do amazingly well at particular tasks. And in a reincarnation-believing culture, it's natural to look at unusual or advanced skills and wonder if there's something you could have learned in a previous life. So I think the naturalistic theory of psychosocial influence would explain those. Are there things that the parental or cultural influence theory has a hard time explaining? Yes, and they begin with accurate statements that the child makes. If these statements exceed random chance in their accuracy, if they're highly specific things that the child has no natural way of knowing, then the parental cultural influence theory does not explain them. You could, pro you could propose that the child had unknown exposure to the information. You could even propose outright coaching and fraud. But unless you have evidence that those things occur, you're explaining away the data rather than explaining it, saying, I don't know what the explanation was, but it must have been natural is a philosophical rather than an evidential claim. And saying, oh, it, it must have been fraud when you don't have any evidence of fraud is similarly problematic. You might propose unknown exposure to information or fraud to explain a handful of cases, but ultimately, whether the naturalistic explanation works will be determined by whether there is a large body of claims made by children that exceed random chance. And based on the reading I've done, it appears that there is such a body of evidence. How accurate do the claims made in the court that researchers have studied tend to be? Quite accurate, but they're not perfect. Uh, children do make claims that either turn out to be false or that can't be shown to be true or false. But in his book, Life Before Life, Jim Tucker discusses one study that investigated cases in India and Sri Lanka. 
it showed that children would make an average of 18 to 25 claims about a past life. And of these, 77% would turn out to be verifiably accurate, meaning 14 to 19 of their claims could be verified. The other 23%, representing four to six claims, were either false or could not be verified. Um, what's more, many of the accurate claims in these cases are highly specific and would not apply to a large number of people. Yet they turned out to be correct, and that goes beyond random chance. So it appears that something is going on with the statements children make in court that exceeds random chance and that can't be explained naturally. And at that point, we have to reintroduce the birthmarks and behaviors that the child displays if they're also correlated with an earlier person in a way that exceeds chance then they also count as evidence for a non-natural explanation a non-natural connection between the earlier person and the child in a court and based on the reading i've done it appears that this happens also so i don't think the naturalistic parental and society influence theory is sufficient to explain all the cases we have. It appears that, at least in some of the cases, we need to look for a paranormal explanation. Then let's look at the first and most common paranormal explanation, the soul theory. How well does it explain the aspects of these cases? Conditionally, it can explain predictions of when or where a person will reincarnate. If you believe that souls can influence where this will happen. So that's an assumption, but it would allow the soul hypothesis to explain these predictions. And, you know, remember, not all reincarnation-believing cultures think you can do this, so this isn't an essential element of the soul theory. When it comes to announcing dreams, I think it also conditionally can explain those if you believe it is possible for a discarnate soul to communicate with the living and influence their dreams. This isn't by the way, pure assumption, because we already have evidence from parapsychology that people can appear as apparitions, suggesting that their soul survives, and that people, we also have evidence that people can have telepathic dreams. So I think that this view is backed up by additional parapsychological evidence, and thus that the soul theory can explain announcing dreams. When it comes to birthmarks, the soul theory can account for that, if you believe in psychokinesis and distant or direct mental influence on living systems. But we have evidence from parapsychology in favor of those. So if a soul survives death, it presumably might be able to influence the development of an unborn child and cause birthmarks. The soul theory would definitely explain all the accurate statements in a court that a child makes. Uh, the soul would just be drawing on its own memories of its experiences as the earlier person. And the soul theory definitely explains any unusual behaviors or skills that the child has, because these may have been things that come from the earlier person whose soul has been reborn. Finally, when it comes to the more universal aspects of court, the soul theory could explain why so many involve violent deaths, because violent deaths are more memorable. So people who died violent deaths might be more likely to remember past lives. Also, 
the other earlier persons who practiced meditation, who died naturally, but who practiced meditation or were highly religious, they might be able to remember their past lives better too. And cases might be stronger in parts of the world where people believe in reincarnation since they'd be more open to contemplating past lives and thus might remember more about them. Are there things that the soul theory has more trouble explaining? There are, and they're essentially the mirror image of the problems with the parental social influence model. The cultural influence model has an easy time explaining the culturally linked aspects of court, and so the soul theory has a harder time explaining them. You know, if people reincarnate, why is reincarnation so much more commonly reported in places where people believe in it? You know, I can imagine them being somewhat more common where people are especially open to reincarnation, but we'd still expect a higher proportion than we see in other parts of the world if people all over the world in general are reincarnating. Also, if people can reincarnate, why do the lengths of intermission vary from one culture to another? You know, why isn't it approximately the same amount of time everywhere? Um, if people can reincarnate as either sex, why do cultures like the Druze not report past lives of both sexes? And if people can't reincarnate as either sex, why do we see so many cases in non-Druze cultures reporting that they can? If people reincarnate, why does it tend to be only under 30 miles from the point of death? Uh, why do people reincarnate at longer distances in larger countries? And why are international reincarnations rare? If people reincarnate, why do cultures have different ratios when the prior person was a relative, an acquaintance, or a stranger? If people can only reincarnate into the father's or their mother's line, why do some cultures report reincarnating in both or neither of these? And if they aren't limited to reincarnating in the father or mother's line, why do some cultures only report them coming back in one line or the other? If people reincarnate and living people are evenly split between males and females, why are males the majority of those who are reported as the earlier persons in court? Now, I want to make it clear that supporters of the soul theory have responses to these questions. For example, maybe the Druze don't, rep don't report people changing sex because they ignore or repress cases that don't fit their model. You know, if if your little boy is saying, I remember being a girl in a past life, he's like, no, you don't. And then they just ignore that because they believe he can only have had male past lives. But perhaps the major overall response is that these culturally linked patterns exist because what you believe in life affects how you will reincarnate. So if you're part of a culture that thinks you can't change sex when you reincarnate, then you won't. If you're part of a culture that thinks you stay a member of the same family, then you'll reincarnate in the same family, and so forth. And that will account for at least most of the cultural differences we see in court. But there are two things that occur to me about this response. First, even though the response provides a way of harmonizing the soul theory with the data, 
the theory still faces more of a challenge with the data than other theories may. This is because you have to bring in an additional assumption that the beliefs of a living person will determine how that person's soul reincarnates. And each additional assumption that you make means that you're proposing a more complex model as opposed to a simpler one that explains the same data. Second, why should we think that soul's reincarnation options are limited by what a living person believe? Uh, you can propose that, but departed souls don't seem to be subject to the same limitations that they are when they're alive. I mean, for example, they can think without a brain. Uh, they can do telepathy, as in announcing dreams, or psychokinesis, as in birthmarks. And you'd think they would have a at least somewhat bigger, broader, and more accurate understanding of the afterlife than we do, because after all, they're in the afterlife. So why should their beliefs during their lifetimes rigidly determine the, the way they're going to reincarnate? Now, this objection or this pair of objections doesn't rule out the soul theory, but I think that it is a point where the soul theory is weaker than other theories are, at least on explaining the culturally linked patterns in reincarnation cases. Now, one objection that's often proposed against the soul theory is the growth of the world population. There are more people alive now than there have ever been alive. So it wouldn't be possible for everyone to have had a past life. How would a believer in the soul theory respond to that? Well, one way is by saying, okay, you're right. Not everybody has a past life. In fact, given the population growth that has occurred, most people today haven't had past lives. And in fact, that's part of why court are so rare. Most people don't remember past lives because most people haven't had them. That's one thing a believer in reincarnation could say. Another thing is maybe reincarnation doesn't happen to everyone. Maybe it's only some people who reincarnate, like people who have unfinished business in life, which could be caused by things like dying an unexpected violent death. Uh, maybe everyone else goes off to heaven and only a few people reincarnate. And there are supporters of the soul theory who would be absolutely open to the idea that either not everybody reincarnates or that most people haven't reincarnated yet because of the recent dramatic rise in the world population. On the other hand, there are other solutions as well. For example, maybe everyone reincarnates, but new souls are being produced to keep up with the population. Or maybe there's a huge pool of existing souls, and as the population has, ridden, has risen, more of that pool have had the opportunity to incarnate and then reincarnate. And there are other solutions as well. But the bottom line is, I don't think that the population growth objection is at all fatal to the soul theory. Are there any other objections to the soul theory that we should cover from the reason perspective? I think there are two. Uh, first, I think there's a potential conflict between parapsychological research on reincarnation and another area of parapsychology, which is mediumship research. We talked about mediums back in episode 137, and we'll talk about them more in future episodes. While a lot of mediums are fake, there are some mediums who are able to come up with information, apparently from departed spirits, in a way that exceeds chance. And 
speaking from the faith perspective momentarily, that's something God allows to happen. For example, it happened with the prophet Samuel after his death. Now, while some mediums believe in reincarnation, what happens when they try to contact a spirit? If everybody reincarnates, especially with an average intermission of only 15 months, then you'd expect that there would be only a 15-month period after death, on average, during which a medium could contact the spirit of the dead person. After that, you either wouldn't be able to contact them because they'd be in a new incarnation, or if you did contact them, you know, maybe talking to their conscious or subconscious minds, they would say, hey, I'm in a new incarnation, don't bug me. Or at least they wouldn't say, everything is great here in the afterlife when you ask them what it's like where they are. Now, I'm aware of a case where a medium did get a message of, hey, I'm in another incarnation, don't bug me. But that is a rare outlier. I only know of that one case, and I've even spoken with other parapsychologists or with parapsychologists who have been surprised to even hear about that case. Normally, the message is, everything's great here in the afterlife. So it sounds to me like mediums have a much easier time contacting discarnate spirits than they should if the spirits were reincarnating an average of every 15 months after their death. And that's incidentally a testable um, suggestion. So uh, it's it's something that could be followed up on in with a parapsychological experiment. So are you aware of any responses to this objection? I'm aware of at least two. Uh, one of them deals with proposing that time doesn't work the same way in the afterlife that it does here on Earth. Um, first, that's highly speculative. And second, I don't buy the premise. The evidence from court would tend to indicate that time works the same way in the afterlife that it does here. It looks like in the year 2000, you know, somebody dies, and then 15 months later, in early 2001, they will on average reincarnate. They might not feel the passage of time while they're, they're in the intermediate state, but come 2001, they should be in a new body and either unavailable to talk or they'd report something different than what they do report when a medium contacts them. So I'm not convinced by this response. A better response is the one we mentioned earlier, that only a few people reincarnate. If most people stay discarnate, then most people could be contacted by a medium, at least in principle. And so the parapsychological mediumship research could be in conflict with research into cases of the reincarnation type. You. I do think, though, that mediumistic evidence creates a problem for the idea that everybody reincarnates, assuming mediumistic evidence works at all. There does seem to be a clash uh, between the two bodies of evidence, at least from my perspective. And no matter what you think about using mediums, whether it's licit or illicit, you know, data is data. And so even if you get data illicitly, the data needs to be taken in consideration when trying to understand things. You also indicated that there was another objection to the soul hypothesis that we should consider. What was that? It's that the children in reincarnation cases typically don't remember all that much about their former lives. And most of what they do remember is bunched up at the end of the earlier person's life, like how he died. 
Other than that, they may remember a few incidents, you know, enough to establish themselves as the person's successor, but not that much. So unless the earlier person died with dementia, and even then, you'd expect that he'd be able to remember much more of his previous life if his full soul had returned. I've even seen uh, reincarnation researchers comment on how it looks like something less than a full personality came back. So that could suggest that something less than a full soul has returned. Then let's look at the residue theory that only part of a person, but not a full soul, is passed between people during court. What should we make of this view? Well, it has the advantage of explaining why the children in court have such spotty knowledge of their apparent former lives, because they haven't inherited all of the earlier person's memories. Uh, Maybe what they've got is just a few thought bundles of residue from the person that they or their mother encountered. So this is a strong point for the residue theory. The theory encounters more of a problem with the idea of making predictions about where you will reincarnate. Because if you come apart at death, you know, into residue, you're likely to have less control, if any, of where your thought bundles are going to end up. It's not impossible that you can control that, but it is a challenge for the view. However, this claim, as we said, is only confined to a few cultures. Not everybody thinks you can predict where you're going to reincarnate. So this isn't a major part of the data. Then there are announcing dreams. And these could be a sign that your mother or someone in the family had encountered the residue of an earlier person. And is she's perceiving that residue as an announcing dream. You know, she bumped into a memory from somebody in the neighboring village, and now she's having a dream about somebody in the neighboring village coming into her, and she interprets that as that person from the other village is announcing he's going to be reborn through me. Um, so that's easiest. That kind of explanation under the residue hypothesis is easiest in the cases of mothers who have announcing dreams. It's a little more complicated, though, if somebody else has the announcing dream. But I don't think that the residue theory explains announcing dreams as well as the soul theory. The way the residue theory could explain birthmarks is by proposing that the mother encounters the residue while she's still pregnant. And then the residue psychokinetically influences the child, presumably through the mother's PK although it could be through the child's PK. Uh, Once the child absorbs the residue of the previous person, the child could use PK to generate corresponding birthmarks. When it comes to statements children make, as well as the behaviors and skills they have, those would be read straight out of the residue. You know, if you inherit a bunch of thought bundles from somebody, you're going to have some of his memories and skills and preferences. So the residue theory can explain all of Stephen's fully developed five characteristics or characteristics of fully developed cases. I don't think it does quite as well as the soul theory, but it does explain them. What about the other aspects of the cases that we've been covering? When it comes to the fact that many people in court report having violent deaths, well, it it could be that you produce more residue or thought bundles if you've been killed violently. or that they're more scattered in the environment, and so they're more likely to encounter a pregnant mother 
or more likely to encounter a child after birth and then implant as memories. The residue theory also could explain why some of the earlier persons in cases like this practiced meditation or were religious. You know, people like that might produce more residue, you know, they might or might scatter more residue. Although, why would people report better higher status past lives than their current ones? Do higher status people produce more residue than lower status people? Um, what the theory does not explain as well is all the culturally linked aspects of the cases, like why reincarnation cases are so much more common and so much stronger in parts of the world where people believe in reincarnation. Because if people release residue when they die, it should be floating around the environment everywhere that people die, and that's everywhere. So we should be having reincarnation cases and of approximately equal strength popping up everywhere people bump into and absorb the residue. Why also should the length of the intermission vary between cultures? If people are bumping into residue, they ought to do so at approximately the same rate everywhere based on the size of the local population. Why would there be no sex change in cultures like the Druze? Why would the proportion of reincarnation cases as relatives, acquaintances, or strangers vary between different cultures based on the cultural beliefs? Why should people reincarnate only in their father's family or only in their mother's family based on local beliefs if you're just bumping into residue? Once again, there are potential answers to these questions. Uh, for example, you could say that mothers or children in different cultures reject residue that doesn't fit with their cultural beliefs. So if a Druze mother is carrying an unborn baby boy and encounters residue from an earlier person that was a woman, she might reject that residue. And so her unborn baby boy would not end up with past life memories from a woman. A problem with this theory is that it would require the mother to subconsciously know the sex of her unborn child. Uh, you could get around that by proposing the child is the one that rejects the inappropriate residue, though. But then that generates a problem in, the unborn, in that the unborn child would have to know the culture's beliefs about reincarnation, even though he hasn't been born and taught those beliefs yet. So, as with the soul theory, there are ways to harmonize the residue theory with the culturally linked aspects of these cases, but I don't think it explains them as well as the naturalistic cultural influence theory does. In fact, I don't even think it explains them quite as well as the soul theory does. If people are leaving residue around their environments when they die, wouldn't more than one person potentially bump into that residue and incorporate it? So that would have two or more people with memories or characteristics of an earlier person? Yeah, you'd think that that would happen. And it's even reported to happen. Um, some cultures explain this by saying that a soul divides or replicates. And so more than one person can inherit it. So you can have two people with the memories or behaviors of a single earlier person. There aren't a huge number of cases of this, though, that have been investigated, but it is reported, and the residue theory would explain it very naturally. Uh, you can also explain it by the cultural influence theory, you know, two people being led by cultural factors to think they were the same earlier person. And James Matlock 
offers a variation on the soul theory that could incorporate it. Uh, He refers to cases where more than one soul is associated with the body as concurrent reincarnation, and he refers to cases where a soul simultaneously returns in more than one body as a multiple reincarnation. But it seems to me that the residue theory explains the reports most naturally, at least of the theories we've considered. If people emit thought bundles when they die, some of those bundles might end up in one person and some might end up in another. We also have independent non-reincarnation-based evidence that could point in the same direction. In his book, Signs of Reincarnation, Matlock writes, Concurrent and multiple reincarnation and continuous incarnation may seem so unlikely that we need not take them seriously, but we should not discard the testimony about them before considering evidence from a very different direction. Organ transplant recipients who adopt the emotional sets, personality traits, and food preferences of their donors without knowing who they are or anything about their lives. Hospital policies that mandate anonymity between organ donors and recipients make it difficult to study transplant cases, but the few that have come to light reveal intriguing similarities to the reincarnation cases that have been investigated by Stevenson and others. Transplant recipients typically report feeling an alien presence within. Some recipients who have learned who their donors were and made contact with their families recognize people and behave toward them as their donors would have behaved. Some recipients develop phobias related to their donor's place or manner of death. Paul Pearsall described a domino transplant with similar effects. A man underwent a successful heart-lung transplant, but his own heart was healthy enough to be given to another man. This man then took on personality traits of his donor, even calling his wife by the name of his donor's wife. Both the heart-lung and heart recipients were alive at the same time. Similar effects have been reported with kidney and liver transplants. I want to call attention to the case of the man who received the heart and lung transplant while donating his own heart to another man. If I read Matlock correctly, the third man took on the personality traits of the second man and even called his wife by the name of the second man's wife. So it looks like some residue passed from the second man to the third man, even though the second man was still alive, and even though both the second and the third man would have had their own souls animating their bodies. Now, you could look, explain this in terms of soul replication, but it seems to me that splitting off some kind of residue would be a more natural explanation. That residue could be some kind of psychic impression, like in psychometry, where people pick up impressions from physical objects. The heart is a physical object, so the third man may have picked up information about the second man from the physical heart we received. This gets us into the area of psychic functioning. So what about the super psi theory? How well does it account for the data? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one because I think the psychic link theory is better. I do have some questions on just how super the psi needs to be to account for the data in court. Uh, Just because living agent psi is involved, that doesn't mean it's super. Um, However, super psi is commonly understood in court cases as involving pulling information from multiple living people and or locations as sources. 
And if that's what we're talking about, then I would agree with critics of the super side view that it's unnecessarily complex. And I think that you can explain everything uh, with a link between just two people, the earlier person and the current child. That is not complex at all. It's just a two-person link with a single source and a single receiver. Hypothetically, the link could be expanded to include more, you know, but any additional people like the child's mother or father who might facilitate the creation of the psychic link wouldn't be sources of information. And the only source in the link is the original person. Anybody else would just be an intermediary, either by passing along information to the child or by facilitating the formation of the link between the earlier person and the child. Then let's talk about the psychic link theory. How well does it fit the evidence? I think it fits the evidence very well. Um, Starting with Stevenson's fully developed five characteristics, it explains them all easily. With regard to announcing where or to whom he will be born, the earlier person is envisioning who he'll reincarnate as, and he's hoping to influence that person by becoming him. So the previous person himself might forge the psychic link with the current child and then download the information into him. Or he might select the child's mother and download the information to the child through her. Or he might plant the idea in the mother or somebody else, and then they facilitated the formation of the link between the earlier person and the child. When it comes to announcing dreams, the dying person might cause that while still alive and focused on those among whom he'll be reborn. And the information might flow through one of these people to the child, or one of these people might initiate the link and facilitate its formation between the original person and the child. When it comes to birthmarks, the original person is trying to influence the child. You know, so it might be his psychokinesis. And in the case of experimental birthmarks, a third person is consciously trying to facilitate a link between the original person and the child. So it might be their PK that produces the birthmark. Or if the mother or father or someone facilitates this link, it could be their PK. Or if the child himself forms the link in utero, it could be his PK. That produces the birthmarks. Alternately, a child might be born with random birthmarks or birth defects, and then he reaches back in time and forms a link with an earlier person with matching wounds as a way of explaining his random birthmarks. When it comes to statements the child makes and behaviors and skills that he displays, this is all straightforwardly informational, and no matter who initiates the link, one would expect information to flow through it. If the original person forms the link, well, he's trying to survive, so he has a motive to form a link and then push through the essence of his identity, even if it's only information about him, you know, forward to the child. If it's a third party who facilitates the link, like a mother who wants a lost loved one back, or someone who has a purely random announcing dream, then that's the third party's motive for forming an information-transmitting link. And if it's the child who reaches back, then he has a motive because he can claim the identity of the previous person and use that to his advantage, like 
being a beloved relative or a higher class individual before, either of which would entitle him to special treatment. When it comes specifically to the behavioral quirks and aptitudes, um, you know, with, with skill, these may function like random birthmarks. The child may have been born with these quirks and aptitudes randomly, and then he reaches back in time to find an appropriate person to explain why he has them. What about the culturally linked aspects of court? When it comes to the culturally linked aspects of cases, the psychic link theory explains them easily. Almost always, the original person, the child, and any third parties live nearby, or at least within the same country if it's larger. They may be members of different subcultures, but they're usually all part of the same broader culture, and so they will either hold or be familiar with the local culture's beliefs about reincarnation. As a result, when forming a psychic link, they'll look for an appropriate person and or you know, an appropriate original person and or current child who would fit with the culture's beliefs about reincarnation. So let's suppose we're in a Druze area, and if it's a Druze case, whoever forms the link will expect the two people to be of the same sex. Whether the person forming the link is the original person looking for a child of the same sex in the future, whether it's the child looking backwards for a person of the same sex in the past, or whether it's a mediating third party, like a mother, looking for an earlier person and a later child who are of the same sex. And the same goes for all the other culturally linked aspects of cases of the reincarnation type. This theory thus seems to have the best of both worlds. The soul theory explains all of Stevenson's fully developed five, but it has a somewhat harder time explaining the culturally linked factors, while the naturalistic cultural influence theory explains the culturally linked factors, but does not explain Stevenson's fully developed five characteristics. This theory explains them both, and very easily. So I think it's a very promising theory that can be seen as preferable to both the cultural influence theory and the soul theory. It also shares with the residue theory an explanation for the fact that children in court would only have incomplete knowledge of the earlier person, because not everything about the earlier person will flow through a psychic link. And in keeping with psychic functioning, it won't all be accurate. So the incomplete and not fully reliable nature of the memories looks like what we would expect from psychic functioning. It also can explain cases of multiple incarnations where two or more people remember being the same earlier person. And it does that as well as the residue theory does. Uh, Jim Matlock points out that there haven't yet been any really good cases of multiple incarnations found by researchers, but you know, the ones that have been reported are of lower quality. But if such cases happen, the psychic link theory would explain them easily because more than one psychic link could be formed to the same earlier person. Uh, child number one might form a link with an earlier person, and then child number two might form a link with the same earlier person so that they both inherit information about this person. This wouldn't be a case of soul splitting or replication, just the information being downloaded by more than one person. The theory sounds promising, but are there any other reasons to prefer the psychic link theory? 
I think there are several. Um, first, it could explain why so many cases involve violent deaths. If you're an earlier person in the process of experiencing a violent death, you're highly motivated to survive, and you might be more successful at forming a psychic link with a future child and funneling information to him that, you know, you may be more able to do that than people not experiencing a violent death would be able to. Alternately, if you're a child looking back in time to find an appropriate person to explain things about you that are unique, like your birthmarks, people experiencing violent deaths might be brighter, more obvious psychic targets to connect with. Similarly, the psychic link theory could explain why those who don't experience violent deaths often practice meditation or are especially religious. Mental disciplines like meditation are associated with psychic functioning and religious religion is an inherently spiritual activity. So both meditators and the religious might be better able to form psychic links with children in the future. Or because of their greater mental discipline, they might make better targets for children looking back into the past. And if it turned out that there are any veridical cases where the earlier person was famous, the psychic link theory could explain that too. People like John F. Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe are famous and thus better known, and thus they might be brighter targets for people to form psychic links with. Uh, some people would even be consciously interested in being able to say that they have their memories and thus they might want to form psychic links with them. Uh, this would even explain the fact if it turned out that multiple people had veridical memories of John F. Kennedy or Marilyn Monroe because more than one person could form a psychic link with them and download their memories. So the psychic link theory could even explain any good famous li past life cases that came along. Though, as I said, cases of this type generally aren't good and are often dismissed and not often studied by researchers. There's also another reason to prefer the psychic link theory where it has an advantage over both the soul and the residue theories. Not only do the children have less information about their previous lives than you would expect them to have based on the soul theory, they don't always seem to have access to information about the past life. Instead, they sometimes have knowledge of earlier persons and sometimes don't. Concerning the statements children make, Jim Tucker writes in his book, Life Before Life. The statements are often intermittent. In many cases, the memories do not appear to be accessible to the children all the time. Reincarnation, that is, the soul theory, clearly explains the statements as the children say that they remember previous lives. Several factors about the statements are odd, however, if reincarnation is the explanation. One, again, is that the memories do not appear to be accessible at all times to many of the children. If a child is a rebirth and is able to recall memories of the previous life, then we might think that he or she would be able to recall them all the time. This spotty memory access sounds like a spotty internet connection. You know, sometimes you can download information from the internet, but if your connection is unreliable, you can't always do so. That makes it sound like the link between the child and the earlier person isn't always there, which you would expect it to be if these were just memories. 
So it sounds like they have a spotty, unreliable link to the previous person. And psychic functioning is known to be spotty and unreliable. So this seems to be another point in favor of the psychic link theory. Ultimately, I think the psychic link theory has a lot going for it. Unlike other theories, all of which have cases that are harder to explain, I have yet to read an account of a court and think, that's hard to explain on the psychic link theory. Are there objections to the psychic link theory that we ought to consider? Since this theory seems to be new, it hasn't been directly critiqued in the literature yet, at least not as far as I've seen. Um, but I would like to bring up an objection that is often raised to the super theory, which is that the children in these cases don't display notable psychic functioning in other areas. And you might expect them to do that if they're able to demonstrate super in this area. Uh, now, that argument has more force if the psychic functioning in a court is indeed super, if they're pulling information from multiple different sources of information and if they're using multiple different psychic methods like telepathy and remote viewing. The objection is less strong on my simpler model, where, the, where only the earlier person serves as a source of information. But we still should consider this objection. What do you make of it? I'm not persuaded by it at all. Uh, first, cases of the reincarnation type are spontaneous experiences. They just happen without people consciously trying to make them happen most of the time. And lots of people have spontaneous psychic experiences. If uh, people with spontaneous experiences took psychic training, like learning how to remote view or something, well, then it might turn out they're very good at it. But without training and without trying, they might have only just one or a few spontaneous experiences. In the same way, children from court who undertook training might turn out to be very good psychics, but these children haven't received psychic training, and so I don't think it's at all unlikely that they might just have a single spontaneous experience, you know, the link with the earlier person, and then have few, if any, other observable psychic experiences. So that's my first response to this objection, that Children ought to be psychic in other areas if they're psychic in this area. My second response is, children in cases of the reincarnation type display psychic functioning a lot. In reading case reports, I've been struck multiple times by hearing the parents describe the child having numerous psychic experiences completely unconnected from the reincarnation case. This is not an uncommon element in court, and we'll talk about some of those children in future episodes. There's even been some research done on this issue. In his book, Return to Life, Jim Tucker writes, Most of the children in our cases do not show any psychic abilities. At last count, only 26% of the families have said that the children displayed any ESP other than their past life memories with nearly three-quarters of those showing just a slight amount. Now, you can hear how Tucker is downplaying this, but to me, this sounds extremely significant. 26% have been reported by families to display psychic functioning unrelated to their past life memories. Now, bear in mind, this isn't the number of children who have psychic functioning. According to many parapsychologists, all of us have low-level psychic functioning happening all the time. 
This represents 26% of the children who have displayed such strong psychic functioning that their families noticed it and were impressed enough by it to both remember it and report it to researchers. 26% of children in court displaying unrelated, memorable psychic functioning would be a high percentage. So, because spontaneous psychic experiences tend to be one-off in nature, and because a high percentage of children in these cases do have repeated unrelated psychic experiences, I don't think this objection is successful at all. And I think that the psychic link theory is a serious contender as an explanation for the data. You said earlier that there is one other theory we need to consider. What's that? One of the big subjects in parapsychology is survival research. Do we have scientific evidence that people survive death? And, you know, that's the reason people study near-death experiences, or one of the reasons. And one reason why they study apparitions and hauntings and mediums and reincarnation cases. And a lot of the discussion centers on whether particular instances offer evidence of survival or whether they can be explained in a way that doesn't involve survival. The soul theory of reincarnation cases would indicate survival because a soul survives and then it comes back in a new body. However, theories involving living agent psi, like the super psi theory and the psychic link theory, don't necessarily involve survival because all of the information transfer is done by people who are living at the time of the transfer, even if they're separate from each other in time. But these two possibilities aren't mutually exclusive. It could be the case that both the soul, the soul survives death and that the data in court is due to living agent psi. That would be my view, for example. But I've been assuming up to this point from the earlier person's perspective that the information transfer takes place at the end of that person's life when they're often desperate to try to survive. What if it doesn't? What if the previous person dies goes to the afterlife, and then the psychic link forms and starts pulling information about it. In this case, what the child experiences would be a kind of partial mediumship. He isn't in full conscious contact with the departed spirit, the kind that would let the two of them have a conversation, but he is subconsciously pulling information about the departed spirit and what it did in life. This kind of contact could potentially explain some of the intermission memories that are reported in cases of the reincarnation type, where the child reports on what a person's soul did after death. And parapsychologists have considered the possibility that children are pulling information from departed souls. Um, this would harmonize the fact that children report the memories of people who lived in the recent past with the fact that good mediums don't seem to report problems contacting their spirits in the afterlife either. So you could envision an afterlife survival plus psychic link theory. Now, today's episode is already long, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this theory, but I did want to mention it. I also want to mention a variant which is of this, which is possession. When most Christians think of possession, they think of demonic possession, where a demon seizes control of someone. And that's a theory we'll, we'll talk about under the faith perspective. But there are other sorts of possession that are reported. 
some, but not all, mediums report a temporary form of possession where they allow a spirit to have at least limited temporary control of what they say and do. And sometimes non-demonic spirits seem to involuntarily take control of people. In the Jewish community, such human spirits are known as dibbuks, and we will be talking about dibbuks in future episodes. But this isn't just something that's reported in the Jewish community. For example, in his book, Occult Phenomena in the Light of Theology, Catholic parapsychologist Father Alois Weisinger recounts an incident from Italy in 1939. He writes, In the south Italian town of Catanzaro on the 13th of February, 1936, the body of Giuseppe Veraldi, a man of 20, was found underneath the bridge, and it was thought that he had thrown himself into the river with the intention of taking his own life. Some three years later, on the 5th of January, 1939, the 17-year-old peasant girl, Maria Tallarico, passed this bridge in the company of her grandmother, being on the way to an agricultural course of instruction in the town. Suddenly, the girl stopped, gazed attentively at the shore, collapsed, and appeared to lose consciousness. When she had been taken home, she said to her mother in a rough man's voice, You are not my mother. My mother lives in the wooden hut, and her name is Caterina Veraldi. I am Pepe. She then asked for wine and cigarettes, took a piece of paper, and wrote on it in the dead Giuseppe Veraldi's handwriting, and began to play cards with the people who were there, calling them Toto, Elio, Rosario, and Damiano. It was remembered that these were the names of the dead man's friends. Toto had in the meanwhile emigrated to South America. She told how these friends had on that fatal occasion put sugar, salt, and poppy seed into his wine and made him drunk. How then they had beaten him and dragged him to the bridge. When Pepe's mother arrived, the girl said to her in Pepe's voice, My friends murdered me. They threw me into the riverbed. Then, as they lay there, they beat me with a piece of iron and tried to make the whole thing look like suicide. We won't go through this story in detail in today's episode, at least, but what Father Weisinger is reporting looks like a case of a recently deceased human soul temporarily working through the body of a teenage girl, a kind of Christian Dybbuk experience. And Father Weisinger is open to that interpretation. I've also spoken to people who work in Catholic exorcism ministry, and they also have reported that demonically possessed people sometimes appear to also have the souls of damned humans in them, which is something we will discuss from the faith perspective in future episodes. My point is that it's also possible that past life memories could be explained in some cases by possession. And parapsychologists are alert to this fact. Parapsychologists do study possession, although not typically the demonic variety. And sometimes possession may be more closely tangled up with a reincarnation case, in which case they may refer to it as an instance of replacement reincarnation. That's why I included the case of the Indian boy Jasper Jat last episode, because Jasper appeared to die. And then he came back with a completely different personality of Sobaram, a man who had just died. And Sobaram's personality remained for the rest of his life. It was as if Jasper really did die and then someone else took his place. Can we use possession as a general explanation for cases of the reincarnation type? I don't think so, and neither do many parapsychologists, because Jasper Jat's case is rare. Um, cases of apparent 
replacement reincarnation are really uncommon. Also, court don't look like typical cases of possession. In a possession case, an alternative personality completely supplants the normal one, and their memories and personality are completely different, like what happened with Jasper Jot. But that isn't what happens in a typical court. It's a normal person with their normal memory and personality. They just have a few quirks, like extra memories of events before their birth. So possession may explain some court, but I don't think it's a good general explanation for most of them. Since we're talking about possession, let's shift over to the faith perspective. Even if possession isn't a good explanation for court in general, could demonic possession be an explanation for some of them? It's possible, but as we discussed in episode 188, you can't just declare something to be demonic. You need evidence to support the demon theory in particular instances. Most court don't appear to involve possession at all, uh, much less possession by a demon. So I'm not seeing the evidence in general, though there could be cases where it happens. Uh, if you can provide evidence both that possession is happening and that that is specifically possession by a demon. Could demons be acting in a more subtle way in court, a way that would, would not be obvious? It's possible. But again, as we discussed in episode 188, you could say that about anything. If you wanted, you could propose all of modern technology is secretly being run by demons. It's part of an elaborate long con game where demons have convinced scientists and engineers that they're manipulating a force called electricity based on the flow of particles called electrons, when really it's demons running every technological device. But that way of thinking is paranoid. It's not only speculating without evidence, it's speculating in the face of evidence that points the other way. We have good evidence for the existence of electrons and electricity, and it's paranoid to say, it's all demons without evidence. In the same way, we see regular patterns in court. We don't see demons manifesting in these cases, not in general. Uh, you don't need demons to explain these patterns. We've already covered multiple theories that can explain the evidence without introducing demons into it. And so it would be paranoid to introduce demons without evidence. If you want to propose a demon in a particular case and you've got evidence to back it up, fine. But it's paranoid to introduce them as a general theory, given the data at hand. Let's talk about reincarnation and the Christian faith more generally. Some people hold that the early Jews and early Christians believed in reincarnation, that it was originally in the Bible, and that it was later taken out by church councils. What do you say to that? We talked about these claims back in episode 94, so you can go back and listen to that for a full discussion. But suffice it to say that these claims are historically misinformed. There was no widespread belief in reincarnation in either the early Jewish or Christian communities. Um, in the early centuries, the only group that had such a belief was the fringe group known as the Gnostics. But they weren't mainstream Christians. They were the ancient equivalent of the modern New Age movement, and they really represented a separate religion that just had some Christian elements in it, just like the modern New Age movement does. Reincarnation also isn't taught in the Bible, and it wasn't taken out of the Bible by church councils. Reincarnation 
isn't even mentioned in the texts of the councils that this is claimed for. And it wouldn't have even been possible for councils to take it out of the Bible because there was no central registry of Bibles that they could go confiscate and then edit. And because we've recovered biblical texts from before these councils even met, you know, like in the sands of Egypt, and none of them have reincarnation in them. So these claims are false. The Christian belief has always been in resurrection, not reincarnation, because Jesus was resurrected. And the New Testament makes it clear that our fate will be the same as Jesus's fate. We will resurrect, not reincarnate. Does scripture ever speak about reincarnation? Not using the term or one of the terms for it, but it does refer to the concept in Hebrews 9.27, which says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. When the author says it is appointed for man to die once, he's responding to the Greco-Roman ideas about reincarnation, where people would die multiple times and come back in different bodies. But the author of Hebrews indicates this isn't the case. We will die once, and then our lives will be judged, determining our ultimate fate. Is there any way to square any form of reincarnation with this? <sighs> this is a more difficult issue than you might think. What is clear is that Hebrews 9.27 establishes the general rule of what happens to human beings but it doesn't require that there are no exceptions to this rule. In fact, there are exceptions to this rule. One of them is the prophet Elijah. He did not die. Instead, he was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind. Uh, he did not ride a fiery chariot. God showed up in a fiery chariot, but Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And so, it would appear that Elijah was an exception to the rule that it is appointed for man to die once because he didn't die. And if Elijah can be an exception to the rule that men die, then I can't completely rule out the possibility that there might be exceptions to the rule that men die once. Back in 1980, the sketchy but not completely heretical, theologian Karl Rahner proposed that children who died very young, including unborn children who die before birth and never have the chance to make a free choice for or against God, might be exceptions to this rule. He proposed that maybe God would, and he didn't say this is happening, but he proposed maybe God would allow them to come back in new bodies, to be born and grow into full moral agents that could then make a responsible choice. Now, I am not favorable towards this idea. It is too speculative for me and too far outside of where the magisterium has gone. But, strictly speaking, as uncomfortable it is to admit, I can't say that it's utterly impossible that God would make exceptions for such people. What I can say is that Hebrews 9.27 definitely describes the rule that applies to human beings. And so any version of the soul theory of reincarnation that proposes reincarnation is the normal fate of mankind is false from the perspective of Christian faith. 
What about the other theories we've covered, like the residue theory and the psychic link theory? They don't appear to be in conflict with the faith, so long as you, your intellectual soul, doesn't come back in a new body, the faith doesn't really have anything to say about it. Uh, So if people leave behind some kind of residue containing memories or behavior patterns or birthmark instructions, the faith doesn't say that this can't pass from one person to another. Uh, At least, you know, I don't think the residue theory is the best explanation of the data, but it's not ruled out from the faith perspective. And as I've indicated, you know, I prefer the psychic link theory as an explanation of the better court. Um, It explains all the data quite easily from my perspective. And like I've said, I have yet to hear of a reincarnation case that I don't think would explain it well. Furthermore, Catholic thought doesn't have much of a history of thinking about the kind of residue that would be required in these cases on the residue theory. But there is a much more robust history of Catholic thought on the existence of psychic functioning. As we discussed in episode 105 and again in episode 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult and other episodes, major saints and church fathers and doctors of the church, you know, the most influential theologians ever, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, believed in psychic function that in the psychic function that we today would call precognition. Aquinas called it natural prophecy to distinguish it from the supernatural prophecy that God gives. And if precognition works, retrocognition could also work. Aquinas also believed in what we would call psychokinesis. Specifically, he believed in distant mental influence on living systems, which could explain birthmarks in court. And there have been other Catholic thinkers who have had no problem with telepathy. So the elements needed for the psychic link theory are already established in Catholic thought, if not in church doctrine. I thus see the psychic link theory both as a good explanation of all of the data and as something that is compatible with the Christian faith. So, Jimmy, what is your bottom line on all of this modern reincarnation research? Modern parapsychological research has shed a lot of light on cases of the reincarnation type. These cases turn out to be quite different than the accounts of reincarnation you hear in popular media and New Age literature. They don't focus on being famous people in exotic places and time periods, but they do display regular patterns that can be statistically measured. Such cases are quite rare. Perhaps only two in a thousand people report them, even in places in the world where reincarnation is the dominant belief. But they do occur, and some that have been studied have children making claims that they had no natural way of knowing and that turn out to be accurate, with the rate of such claims being around 77% accurate, even for highly unusual specific claims. When it comes to explanations that have been proposed for the data in these cases, the naturalistic theory of social influence may explain some cases but it does not explain the accurate elements of these cases that go beyond chance. When it comes to the soul theory, it does explain the accurate elements of these cases, but it has a harder time, at least somewhat, explaining the culturally linked aspects of the cases. You have to introduce additional assumptions for that. When it comes to the residue theory, it also explains the accurate elements, but it has a 
more of a challenge with the culturally linked elements. However, I think the psychic link theory explains both the accurate elements in the cases and the culturally linked elements. So for my money, the psychic link theory is the best explanation for these rare but fascinating cases. Anything else we should say before we go? Once again, I want to say a special thank you to Dr. James Matlock, who is one of the most prominent reincarnation researchers today, uh, for reviewing the script for today's episode and sending me his feedback. We do have different views on some things. As I mentioned, he has his own theory called the processual soul theory, whereas I prefer my psychic link theory. But he was kind enough to review the script ahead of time and send me his feedback. He also gave me additional suggestions on things to research and think about that we didn't have time to cover in this episode, but I will be discussing them in future episodes or in writing that I'd like to do on this subject in the future. One of the things that I'd like to do is write at least a short book exploring the psychic link theory in detail so that the parapsychological community can consider it. I'll definitely be covering all of Dr. Matlock's suggestions in that. So, for today's purposes, he was of special help, both with last week's episodes and today's, and so I want to say a special thanks. And Jimmy, what, kind, what resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have links to Ian Stevenson's book, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, and his book, Children Who Remember Past Lives. We'll have a link to James Matlock's book, Signs of Reincarnation, and also a book that he wrote with Erlander Haraldson called I Saw a Light and Came Here. We'll have links to Jim Tucker's book, Life Before Life, and his book, Return to Life, Paul Edwards' book, Reincarnation, A Critical Examination, Alois Weisinger's book, Occult Phenomena in the Light of Theology, also information about Ian Stevenson, Patterns in Reincarnation Cases, Famous Past Life Claims, Replacement Reincarnation, and Jasper Lal Jot. So that's it from us this time. What are your thoughts about the reincarnation theories that we've covered today? Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. Um, be sure to check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, and see how much the video adds to the experience of listening to the podcast. While you're there, uh, please like and um, and comment on the videos because that tells the YouTube algorithm that you found this video interesting enough to react to it, to say you liked it and to uh, comment on it. And that means other people may find the video interesting, too. So the algorithm will show it to more people and you can help the podcast grow by liking and commenting. Also, I'm, I am trying to grow my own channel and we're working on getting to 50,000 uh, subscribers. So I'd really appreciate it while you're there. If you click on the subscribe button and also hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I release a new Mysterious World video or one of the other videos that I release. So Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? 
Next time, we're going to be telling you one of the most bizarre true crime stories I have ever heard. Now, nobody dies, nobody gets killed, everybody's fine in the end, but wow, the story of victim F is one of the most mind-blowing things you will ever hear. Looking forward to that. All right, folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 276. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit SQPN.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accounts accountability check-ins strengthen yourself to help further god's kingdom work out for the right reason with the right mindset learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com and by the grady group a catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the united states using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients learn more at gradygroupinc.com until next time jimmy aiken thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thanks Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash technology.